This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. This is Nabil Mahmoud from Hawaii. Philip Koblenz from Brooklyn, New York. Hi, I'm Dr. Julie Albright from Los Angeles. Dr. Albright, thank you for joining us today at the Nomad Futures Podcast. Excited to have you on board today. Let's start with some of the basic questions in your background. How did you get started, who you are, what you do, and where you're at in your life? Wow, that's a big question. This could <laughs> go on for some time. How long do we have? Well, I'm a digital sociologist at the University of Southern California. And some people say, what is that? Yeah, but it, it actually sort of evolved over time. I have two masters and a dual doctorate. One side of that is on sociology, but the other side is on marriage and family therapy. I was actually a licensed counselor in the state of California. So I have a master's and a PhD in marriage and family therapy. So that's where the behavioral understanding comes from in terms of what's going on. So as I started in my first master's in counseling, I started seeing people meeting and dating and talking in online chat rooms and whatnot and flying around the world to meet each other. And I, I said to my dad, this is going to be huge. And my dad saw lines of text scrolling up a screen in, in, in a chat room. And he said, why would anybody ever want to do that? I just knew it was going to be gigantic because I saw that people were really forging connections. And this was in a time when many of the scholars uh, of early internet in interactions and all said it was literally impossible to form relationships online. But I knew it wasn't impossible because I was seeing it happen before my very eyes. So I started studying that. I studied, I looked at online dating as an example of that. Um, and I ended up doing my dissertation on that topic where I looked at, uh, Interestingly, I think how people present themselves in an online context, are they, are they lying? Are they telling the truth? And, and when there's a gap between what people's first impression was online and then what I called the second impression when they met them in person, why was there a gap? And it turns out that most of the time it wasn't because somebody was lying. In fact, it was because we project into the online world, our wishes, our fantasies, our dreams. Suddenly there's Prince or Princess Charming, uh, and we thought we found the one that we've never seen before because we're able to project all this extra stuff into this world. So from there, I started working with eHarmony. I went to USC. And when I got to USC, I wanted to continue to look at this impact of computing on society. And we had a fellow there who was giving the, I guess it was a welcome speech, welcome new PhD students. And he got up on the podium, and I'll never forget this. He goes, uh, really great to have you here. Uh, we're all about new ideas. If you have a new idea, let us know. We can't wait. I thought this was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. I rush up to the guy and say, hey, I want to look at the impact of computing on society. And he looks at me and says, what does that have to do with sociology? Oh my gosh. So here I was, you know, thinking I had this new idea and forging this new territory in sociology. And they're looking at me scratching their heads. What are you talking about? You know? So uh, my mother used to say, people don't understand you because you're so far out ahead of everybody. But at this point now, I see it as the wave of everybody has caught up to me in the sense of understanding that 
this idea of digital connectivity and living online and, and how we use our devices to meet and mate and socialize and do business and everything else has exploded, as you know. And this is right now in this COVID moment, this is the primary way that we're doing business and seeing our friends and family and things of that nature. So it's really been fascinating to watch the development over time from less than 3% of, of the public on the internet to now the majority and, and that it's going global, which really reshapes a lot of dynamics. So that's kind of how I got here in terms of my interests I guess one last detail is um, I've been working around uh, data centers, digital infrastructure now for the last few years. Um, I'm on the board of directors of Infrastructure Masons. And I got there because this work I was telling you about, I met the former CTO of Chevron at USC at graduation. He'd come on board uh, to run our energy institute. But I didn't know that's who it was. I just knew I met this fella. And he said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I uh, look at the impact of computing on society. He goes, oh, I think that's the biggest driver of social change, the printing press, the industrial revolution, the digital revolution. And I thought, oh, my God, most people's eyes roll up in their head. They don't know what I'm talking about. He obviously not only got it, but had been thinking about it for some period of time. So... Uh, suddenly they, we were in our faculty uh, gowns, it was graduation, and they said, go, go, go. So we started marching outside, and they pointed at me and said, you, go on that side. Him, go on the other side. And they had two columns of professors marching, marching toward the stage. Well, I, I sort of extrapolated where we were going. Each column was going to go to a different set of sec, uh, seats, and I would never see this gentleman again. Again, I didn't know who he was, I didn't, uh, but there was something there, and he got it in a way that most people don't. So I had to make a split-second life-changing decision. Do I keep marching in a line like I'm supposed to, or do I run across the line and stick with this guy who, you know, to keep that conversation going and find out more? So I just said, you know, march as you're supposed to or run. And so I just made a quick decision. I ran across that line. I said, hey, I'm sticking with you. And he said, good. So a few months later, long story short, he invited me to a lunch at the faculty club to work on a grant around the smart grid, uh, which, you know, he goes, oh, I'll tell you what it is. But I read up on it. By the time we hit that lunch, I had all these ideas popping about how we could gamify, for example, energy behavior using phones and you know devices and things like that to, to um, encourage conservation behavior. So we wrote a grant, a $121 million grant uh, for the Department of Energy uh, with some other organizations like uh, JPL and Caltech and UCLA, and we won it. So uh, hence my, because of my piece was so innovative is why we want it. That's what the Department of Energy told Don Paul, who I found out later was the former CTO of Chevron. So uh, that's how I got into infrastructure, was working with the Energy Institute and on that grant. And, uh, and, and so here I am with you guys today. Glad to be here. Still a major gap or major transition coming from marriage counseling and relationships online and whatnot to technology. How did you end up bridging that gap and ended up speaking the same language as us? 
Well, uh, I guess I'm a quick learner. One thing, uh, I'm always interested in technology. So I learned a little bit of coding and things like that, but just mostly absorbing, listening. Uh, I've been on a world tour with my book. I guess I got into the industry originally uh, by an invitation of uh, Mr. Bruce Taylor with DCD. So I gave the keynote at DCD New York and he, he said, either this is going to be a life-changing moment for him or a career killer <laughs> to bring me in as such an out-of-the-box thinker. But he saw my work and felt that it could inform the industry in terms of where it's going, you know, what the consumer demands are going to be, what changes we're looking at on the horizon. And at the end of my talk, you know, I didn't know who was in the audience and ended up with a 20, 25-minute long line. Uh, of people waiting to talk to me, including the chief strategist of Microsoft, who waited 20 minutes in a line. Afterwards, I, I, it, uh, the guy rushed up to me, said, do you know who that is? I said, I don't know any of these guys. That's the chief strategist of Microsoft. And I went, wait, he waited in a line to talk to me for 20 minutes? I mean, I was stunned at that point, but it really reverberated. And from then on, you know, I've been invited to conferences around the world to talk about these issues because the way I see it, if you think about just, for example, the utility business, which is where I first got involved with electrical power and things, you know, it used to be sort of like the castle on the hill with the moat and the alligators, you know, and then the, the peasants and everybody else are, are down. Never the twain shall meet kind of thing. And edicts came down from above, you know, hey, you're going to have a, a an energy rate raise or something like that. And that was all the interaction there was between the utility, the infrastructure and and the everyday people. But now when you talk about smart grids, when you talk about the internet, when you talk about all these sorts of things, everything going digital, becoming smarter, uh, smart cities, cars that drive themselves, all these things. Now the consumer and the infrastructure are closer and interacting more frequently than ever before. So now suddenly you see my world and that world have intersected to the point where the tech guys want to understand the behavioral side more, want to understand what the implications are. Because if you think of fail cases, for example, many, many times, or cybersecurity issues, many, many times, it's not a technical issue. It's a behavioral issue. So wouldn't it be nice to understand that side of the equation? So I think that's where we're at now. It's kind of interesting. You were very well received in the industry because of the human behavior and, and, and the fact that it's a different thought process that a lot of technologists have not been accustomed to. In your talks, in your travel, what is it that you have found as far as on the other side of us? What are the areas of improvements for the, the guys that are involved in data center industry or that are involved in the application layer, that are involved in developing uh, technology and platforms? What are the things that they should be looking at? Well, I think the number one thing that keeps coming up, uh, again, I've been on this world tour with my book. I've been to uh, Jakarta and Singapore. I've been down to South America. I've been down to Sydney, Australia. Been over to Europe. I've been in New York, Portland, Oregon, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. I spoke at Google. I mean, you name it. So the beauty of that is it enabled me to be in conversation with everybody around the world. And it's so funny because people kept coming up to me talking about their kids and their digital natives and what they're seeing and their young employees. But one of the keys is, and I'm starting to work on a next uh, book around this idea, is that all around, People are saying, hey, 
we don't have enough guys and gals to run this thing. So the idea being that we need to develop this digital workforce that's aware that there's something behind the apps. There's something behind the Twitters and the Facebooks and the TikToks and everything that they use every day or the Uber apps. And and that we need people to, to build, maintain, and run these systems. I call it the greatest job nobody knows about. So uh, I, I also work in engineering. I teach a course with an electrical engineer called Sustainable Infrastructures at USC. I think this is our fourth or fifth year now to do it. And uh, I tell the students, and I, I've actually brought in guys like uh, Eddie Shooter from Switch and, and whatnot to speak about um, this job opportunity and what it looks like and what it could be. And they're amazed, never heard a thing about it. So really the industry has an awareness problem. So we need to sort of bridge that to keep things going uh, without coming to a crashing halt at some point because people are sort of aging out and retiring and things like that. We need a new crop of workers to come on in. I think you did. You just did a better job of explaining why we started this podcast than we've ever been able to articulate. I mean, it's exactly, you know, when we discussed, when Abila and I discussed starting this thing, the entire basis of it was the idea of, you know, exposing the, the young folks, the next generation of people that, you know, tended to gravitate towards finance or, or legal or entertainment or media or any of these kind of social type of uh, environments without really looking at, the critical infrastructure industry and all of the you know surrounding parts as an option because they think of it as to the extent that they know it exists they think of it as you know that's where the geeks go and i don't know anything about technology and and, and all that so the way the way you've been able to bridge that gap yourself and articulate the the fact that it's so clear that in all of those other verticals technology is the enabler and by being in media or being in finance or being in legal, you are a consumer of technology and you're using it. So it's not just about, and I say this all the time in the podcast, it's not just about knowing how it works, but why it works. It's, it, it, it's an incredible story. Well, the funny thing is that you said that uh, I actually polled my students just out of curiosity because I, I have hunches, but then I kind of test them out. And I said, how many, and I took an actual poll that they pulled in with their cell phones. And I said, how many of you have heard of the cloud? A hundred percent said they'd heard of the cloud. Okay. Next question. Do you know where the cloud lives? There, and, and it was a fill in. It wasn't like check the box. And so their answers ranged from on personal little internets to West Philadelphia, so I was just going, okay, I mean, zero idea. And, and, you know, they think it's out there, a cloud, like a cloud in the ether somewhere floating in the air. They don't realize that it lives on machines somewhere in a building with people. So this next book I'm working on has a working title called The Cloud Machine. You know, it's kind of like a Wizard of Oz story where you peel back the curtain and there's a guy back there turning knobs. There's a guy back there and a gal back there doing something with the machine that makes your Instagram post of your lunch work. So, you know, this idea that we, we just need a, a more awareness. And I, I think the whole industry has been on stealth mode because of security reasons, which is a win or a positive for that reason. But the, the downside is, again, it's the best job nobody knows about. Who knew the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was about a data center technician? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing I just, I guess I want to say is when you talk about demogra- socio-demographic changes and what's on the horizon, you asked me about that. Younger, the younger kids that are teens now that are going to be coming into college and whatnot soon, they are more interested in jobs that are secure, a secure future. Well, let me tell you something. Digital infrastructure has been booming. If you look at the numbers and look at the cloud plays, given this pandemic moment, given and, and that's something that's going to be on our horizon with, you know, natural events like hurricanes being stronger and people hunkering down and pandemics coming through. Guess what? We're all going to fall back on digital infrastructure. So great, secure job. And that ties right into what kids are looking for. So those are the kind of messages we need to get out to them, I think. And, and to your point, it's not just the geeks, it's the whole gamut from the business to the software, to the hardware, to construction and trades. You guys at Facebook are saying, we can't find enough guys to build these things. So all the layers, let's say, all the layers have wonderful jobs in them. And we need to get that message out, I think. Absolutely. It's keeping a finger on the pulse. You've got to be in the moment. This is the future. Technology is now. And there's no going back into banking as being the job that you're going to have for 30 years. There's no going back into any other segment for that matter that you're going to have that job and retire out of it for the next 30, 40 years. One of the things that Phil and I talk about all the time in this podcast is the fact that we need individuals that do have a different outlook, like in finance and research and retail or whatever the case might be, and bring them into the technology part. For instance, retail is going to disappear. The, that's the future, uh, or that's the current state. Uh, Amazon is doing phenomenal in the current state of affairs uh, with the fact that they're able to deliver products and services to the consumers. So retail is the future. How do we bring that user experience that you actually had from retail for the last 30, 40, 50 years into an experience that's more digital? We need people with that skill set and experience to come into the space to transform it for the future. How do you keep a pulse on tomorrow? In, in your books, in your writings, in your talks, what are you looking at as the next big thing? What's the next big wave? Well, I think the next big wave right now is looking toward the global growth of infrastructure. You know, you could look at uh, projects like, for example, um, Elon Musk's Starlink, where, you know, he's shooting up, aspiring to shoot 42,000 what I call artificial stars into the sky to give internet access to everybody at the farthest reaches of the planet. Uh, You've got Google Loon, who are sending balloons out into Kenya uh, to to get internet there or into the depths of the Amazon rainforest to bring internet access to the furthest reaches of our planet. So that's going to reshuffle everything. That's going to reshuffle the global dance of work and the workplace, uh, dynamics around economics, dynamics around the social. So all these things, you're going to see things coming out of the ends of the earth that you never knew about culturally, musically, arts, all these kinds of things. And I think that uh, it's a very exciting time. So I think that's the key. And I also think, here's, here's another interesting statistic, that during this COVID moment, I call it, searches on Google for how to live more sustainably are up over 4,000%. How to live more sustainably. This is what people are searching. We shouldn't be asking Google for that, though. 
Well, the fact is what that shows me, you asked me, how, how do we know? I know because I see indicators. I see patterns. What I see, what I like to say is, and in my book and in the future work I'm doing, you know, the stars are in the firmament. I see the constellation in the stars. So when you see these various, in other words, data points, patterns, trends happening, I like to tie them together. So what that tells me is in this moment, it's revealed this idea of sustainability. And that's another thing that we can think about in the data center industry is, is uh, you know, green data. You know, let consumers, young consumers are very interested in sustainability. My college students, for example, they all carry those water bottles that you can refill. Like, let's say 10 years ago, they didn't do that. They all do that now. It's a big deal to them. So this idea of sort of green data, greening the data center and living more sustainably, there's going to be a lot around that. And I also think that some people will probably be moving away from the cities so this idea of sort of remote connectivity and, and how we create communities uh, around that is going to be important. This has really revealed some of the weaknesses in, in, in our world, in a sense. Uh, and, and so I think there's going to be a lot of changes afoot around those issues. So I recently did a post on 2020 vision, the future state of the norm. Work from home and work from anywhere, I believe, is the new culture. Generation X and the generations prior, we've just followed that. The millennials and the other generations, I think they have a lot more intellect because they've got more information available at their fingertips. Do you believe post-COVID-19, work from home, work from anywhere is going to be the norm? And if so, what do you think would be the acceptance rate for a lot of enterprise on a go-forward basis? So that's one of the cornerstones of my book that I talk about is this idea that young people, you mentioned millennials in particular, or digital natives, those that grew up in a world where there always was an internet, are coming untethered. They are unhooking from traditional ways of doing things like buying a home or buying a car, getting married, having kids, going to church, joining political parties, all these sorts of routine behaviors for others. And also, having these long-term careers. I, I mentioned my mentor as the CTO of Chevron. He was there like 34 years. You know, I teach with the former CTO of Northrop Grumman. He was there like 32 years. You know, that was kind of like the generations past, sort of more normative. But what's happening now, so this idea of coming untethered, working remotely that you talked about, was something that maybe digital natives would do more than other generations, older generations. But this COVID moment has now created a situation where we're all now living untethered. We're all suddenly working remotely. And the funny thing is you, you hear, say, baby boomers saying, you know what? Actually, I'm seeing some benefits of this. I'm not commuting. I'm getting more rest. I'm walking every day because I'm, I've got that time that I can have in my schedule now to do physical things. I feel better than I've felt in years. And so there's so what was sort of a fringe, edgy thing of young digital natives, now more people are doing it and catching on to it. So again, to your point of what are the future trends, I think we're going to start seeing people you know, hell no, we won't go back to work. So it's this idea, sort of a hybrid moment that we're going to see where there's going to be a significant amount of workers that are going to want to stay home and work at least some hybrid sense of home, remote, 
and in the office. But I, I think we're going to see a, a big change around that as people actually experience it and see some of the upsides of doing so. I think in, um, in just one point that Nabil and I bring up from time to time, and you can tell that one of us is in Kona and one of us is in Brooklyn because I call it a work-life balance and he calls it a life-work balance. What do you think is the concern in terms of that? I mean, when we're all essentially working from home and, and you have that notion where we're all essentially sleeping at the office, some people that don't necessarily have the discipline to create a separation and look for that time to be with you know their family or to focus on on the physical elements of it might be trapped in this just working constantly and not really being present for their family because the bedroom is now the office. You know, what, what, what do you see in terms of trends? I think that's a really great point is that we do need to find time. And, and I talked, it's funny because the trends I talked about in my book have all amplified exponentially since last year, which is insane. But um, there are chapters where I talk about our connection to our body and our connection to nature. Uh, and the, given this moment, those things are more important than ever. The idea that we work on our mental health, our physical health. Uh, in fact, in, in the sense of COVID, a couple of the most important things are, guess what? Vitamin C, part of that is fresh fruits and fresh vegetables, and vitamin D. Where do you get that? From being outside in the sun. So this idea that, you know, we need to have a balance, which is what you're talking about. And I call for, you know, eating fresher foods, spending time in nature, spending time on our bodies, ourselves, our relationships, uh, you know, our mental and physical health as sort of a system. More important than ever to carve time out and, and make sure that that's important. And I think companies need to take a, a leadership role in this as well. Another poll I did, this will enlighten you as well, my students, I said, so let's say you're going to uh, get into the workforce. You know, what do you want to see? They're talking about wellness things. They want to see yoga at work. They want to have, you know, this sort of health emphasis. They even talked about having a mental health counselor available to them on site or like a clinic where they could just pop in type of thing. And so this idea that they're really thinking about wellness, they're the ones suffering from things like high levels of anxiety and depression because they're untethered. So that's the, the other downside is that when we become disconnected, from our communities, our friends, our family, even our workplace is a social event, P.S. We drive up those levels of things like anxiety and depression and loneliness, which can then feed into problems in the workforce if, as you've got employees melting down. So I would suggest that all of our business leaders take this as a top priority, emphasize that for the workers. I mean, it's a win-win situation if you've got happy, healthy workers out there as opposed to you've got ones that are melting down. I think this is a good move for business, not just for it's a nice thing to do. So do you think we'll follow the lead of what the Europeans have been doing as far as the workforce is concerned, that you have a month of holiday in summer, a month of holiday in winter? You can go for long lunches in the afternoon, take a nap, and come back to work? Well, I've spent a lot of time in France and Italy just for those reasons. I think they have a wonderful quality of life. And uh, I did a panel with a fellow from Europe, and he said to me, we work to live, and you live to work. 
And I think that's really significant. Uh, I wrote a lot of my book over in Paris and, and whatnot. And I think that uh, it's just a different cultural understanding of the role of work. And we've sort of gotten carried away, the pendulum swinging, you know, way too far. So I think the, the millennials with their idea of working untethered want to strike that work-life balance. They want to be able to work in Bali poolside and then hang out a little bit or, you know, backpack through Europe while working remotely on their social media campaigns or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, again, will those trends that, that I started seeing translate up, for example, to older uh, folks in the workforce? I think we're starting to see that. Uh, and especially you know, again, like fellows like that attorney I was talking about that said, gee, I'm feeling better than ever when they're realizing some of these benefits, uh, you know, maybe. But I don't see us taking on a European model, unfortunately. It's much more humane and much more healthy. I just don't think we're that sophisticated yet, to be honest with you. Well, there you go. I think we've got an answer. It's life and work balance, not work and life balance. Again, easy to say from Kona. <laughs> As we move forward, and, and we, we kind of briefly touched on COVID-19, what are some of the good things uh, that you feel are going to come out of it? Do you believe that the old guard is going to potentially change their mindset, particularly putting in perspective the baby boomers, they've run their businesses with count number of bums that are sitting in the seats versus KPIs versus performance. Are we at that chasm today that they are willing to make that shift? Well, here's the thing. Uh, in my view, at this point in time, now we've been hit by this global pandemic. You know, there's going to be another wave rolling through in November. And who's to say that we don't have some other variation next cold and flu season of something like this? So my point is, I think businesses, nobody planned for a pandemic. You know, nobody planned in their emergency planning. You know, maybe there was a power surge or a blackout, but they didn't plan for a pandemic. And, and I think that, you know, again, business leaders need to start thinking through, you know, what is the plan and can you be more agile as a business and more flexible in terms of being able to flex in and flex out and have people working remotely or not? And I think that's going to have to be part of the future plan because this isn't the one and done. I think that we're in for a series of at least this year and possibly next year and who knows in the future uh, of this sort of in and out of the house. What I call this, by the way, this is the first time I've said this publicly, I call this rolling business blackouts. You know how they have rolling blackouts of power? These are rolling business blackouts. And so I think that we're going to see over the next few years a series of rolling business blackouts that we're going to have to adjust to. So hopefully the baby boomers that are in positions to make these changes will understand they need to be more agile to be able to, you know, twist and turn and adapt and, and maybe come in and come out um, of this moment. Yeah, I mean, there's, we, we, we've mentioned this on, on previous podcasts, by the way. I just want to acknowledge that that's the first breaking news we've ever had on the Nomad Futurist podcast, business blackouts, uh, corporate blackouts. You've heard it here first, folks. What uh, Nabil and I have have constantly uh, talked about on these podcasts is the notion of of that that old guard not being able to, to really maintain that same stature. I mean, you, as a business, um, it used to be a nice thing to be able to work from home. It used to be one of those, you know, fringe benefits to to a certain amount of businesses. And there's just no question that, you know, those those people, they're going to say, hell no, we are not going back to work um, or going to start being the majority. I don't know a lot of people 
I know a lot of people that are clamoring to get out of the house and certainly a lot of people that are clamoring to get their kids back in school. But I don't know a lot of people that are clamoring for the water cooler, you know, so so the notion of, you know, businesses having to evolve or just not being able to attract the type of talent that they would need to compete is is an incredibly uh, important one. That's a really key point. And a lot of younger college student age, millennials and all, want the ability to work remotely. They they call it, by the way, a right. They think they have the right to work remotely. The majority of them think that. So businesses have been struggling with this because it's been possible to do. Some have been going all in on remote, selling their offices. And some like IBM are saying, hey, get back in here, work shoulder to shoulder with your comrades or you're fired. So these are both sides of the continuum struggling with this world where we're all sort of living untethered. How do we do this? How do we negotiate this new world where digital connectivity enables new behaviors? This is one set of those behaviors that you're identifying here, the untethered workforce. And how do we manage it? How do we adapt to it? Is this a big thing? Is this a fringe element? Well, again, it was more of sort of a trending, you know, leading edge element, you could say. Well, you know that adoption curve. You talked about early adopters. Well, these are the early adopters, the digital natives and the millennials of remote work, of working untethered. Well, now guess what? We're getting into the majority adoption part of that curve now because we're forced into it and people got a taste of it, like it or not. And here we are. And maintaining that culture while also enabling remote work. I mean, I think that's one of the things um, that you're going to see evolutions, not just logistically in terms of the ability to work through Zoom or whatever platform you're using, but how to maintain that corporate culture. You know, how is HR going to make sure that, you know, while that we call it social distancing, as my kids' school refer to it, it's physical distancing while maintaining, you know, some social connection where your comrades can, you know, still be your comrades. You know, I, I used to actually talk about this, that I was always fond of the millennials. They have it figured out. They're, they're much smarter than all of us. They want to work for what they need and they prioritize lifestyle over keeping up with the Joneses. As we look forward, many of the science fiction movies present a very dark vision from your background and what you do, are you an optimistic or a pessimistic person and your thoughts about where we headed? That's funny that you said that. I, I have been trying to sort of keep the troops bucked up by giving little messages about hope and resilience. And today I talked about optimism and how important it is to remain optimistic for the future. It turns out that being optimistic even has physical health benefits that are very significant. Uh, You're less likely to even catch uh, viral things in your lungs uh, if you're optimistic. You're going to live longer and all these things. So uh, I think it's important to maintain an optimistic view, to think about what are the upsides or the unintended upsides of, of being in this moment, and how can we bring some of those forward, some of those, hey, I'm sleeping better, I'm walking, you know, how do we bring some of these things that people weren't doing, the employees of the world out there, uh, um, how do we bring that into the future? Um, interestingly, when you said science fiction, I've been reading a story that's inspiring my next book. Uh, and it was written in, I don't know if you've ever seen this, it was written by Forster, who wrote Passage to India, 
some time ago, you may remember. It, this was written in 1909, I want to say, and the story's called The Machine Stopped. And Forrester in 1909 envisioned a world where we were all sitting inside. It sounded to me like the world got so polluted that everybody who's living indoors now never saw the sun and kept all the shades down and everything. But they got all their entertainment. They socialize and talk to each other and, and exchange ideas on a screen. Uh, the, the machine would provide all the heating and cooling and all this stuff. It sounds to me like the modern day, yeah, the, and the modern day internet, exactly. And the horror of this science fiction story is that the machine stopped. So the whole point of this is, I think that we need to think through as we intensify digital connectivity to the internet of everything, to, as we talked about earlier, global reaches to the farthest reaches of the earth. We need people to run this machine so the machine doesn't stop. And we don't live in that horror movie that Forrester envisioned at the beginning of the 1900s. And, and, and here we are. So uh, dreams come true in science fiction. It, it, and here we are in that moment, really rethinking how to do all this when the world relies upon the invisible infrastructure that's running it all. Yeah, and a lot of history repeats itself. hundred years ago, we had the flu, 1917 and 18. Guess where we're at after hundred years? We should learn from our experiences. You know, Mark Healy and I actually talk about it all the time, that foundationally we are broken and the human habits are difficult to break. We keep on doing the same thing over and over again, expect different results. And it's, it's kind of like, in, in a lot of ways, put us in that scenario. As far as COVID-19 is concerned, do you think big data and or quantum computing could be an answer in getting closer to a vaccine or a solution uh, sooner than later? Well, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, contact tracing and things like that. I think that's probably uh, a good idea. Um, I think, though, that there is part of coming untethered um, has been a cynicism or a suspicion towards institutions. And that's part of, again, what I was exploring in, in my book. And that cynicism or the idea of who can you trust uh, is has really broken down that sort of, you know, we're all in this together notion. Uh, and so I think that, you know, things like big data and contact tracing, uh, it's a hard sell now because of that. You know, we're able to have all these conspiracy theories and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, people then at the same time will use Facebook, uh, which knows where you are, by the way, or Google every day. Uh, they don't realize that these companies already know where you are and what you're doing. Your Apple phone's tracking you uh, every moment. So and they don't realize that. But when it's made overt, then, it, you know, there's a privacy concern. So I think it's a tough sell uh, and people don't always connect the dots there. But but certainly uh, it would it would help. Sure. I, I'm all for data. I'm a social scientist. Yeah, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, based on half of your experience with uh, the marriage and therapist part of, of your background, to find out if COVID divorce is a thing. And, and you know, what, what are the things that people need to look for at when everyone is essentially hunkered down? I mean, in, in, in Nabil's Kona 
like tropical paradise, it might be easy to, to separate. In my, you know, Brooklyn existence, we are literally on top of each other. If I didn't have this virtual background, you would see a steady stream of children coming back and forth from the printer, picking up assignments and screaming at each other and all this stuff. Um, the wonders of modern technology. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that and, and, and how people can kind of cope with being in this environment and, and how to kind of handle transitioning to, you know, more of a permanence to some of this uh, disruption? Well, that, that's a question we can spend another week on, I think, right there. <laughs> I also wrote a lot of my book in New York. It's kind of a Valentine to New York in a sense. Uh, I was in Park Slope and I was in Fort Greene. So one of the chapters actually opens in Fort Greene and, and me watching the kids going by on the streets, you know, the quiet streets now. What a different picture it would be now, right? Yeah, That absolutely. book wouldn't even be possible in this moment. So, um, you know, I think uh, just everyday routines. I saw this wonderful college um commencement speech that was a fellow you might have seen as a former navy seal became a commander and all this stuff and and here's what he said he said make your bed in the morning he goes you know if if you have a bad day you go in there and you see your bed made you think oh that looks pretty good and you're gonna get in this bed and you feel good he goes you have a good day you go in there you see your bed made you know you feel great about it so my point of saying that is Try to establish some routines like that. It's easy. You know, you think about what does it mean to be depressed? Well, what it means to be depressed is, guess what? You stop taking care of yourself. You stop taking care of your surroundings. You don't take care of the things around you in your environment. And your environment feeds back into your mind. If your environment is chaotic and crazy, then guess what? Your mind is also that. It's almost like an eminence of how you're feeling inside, a reflection of how you're feeling inside. So, Calming your environment will calm your mind and calm you down. And we all need to calm our stress levels down right now. So if there's any advice I would do, take a shower, you know, groom yourself, make your bed. You know, these might sound like trivial or trite, but when you look around and your world is in order, it gives you more of a sense of, of peace. And so that's, that's what I would try to do. And if there's ways to do physical things, even, you know, yoga, you know, watching it on a screen on YouTube, on your TV or whatever, meditations, there's apps that can help you with that. Try to seek that calm and, and seek that because it, everything emanates out from that. How people feel stressed and then they attack the, their partner, you know, and we see domestic violence go up, for example. So try to seek calm and peace in yourself and that'll emanate to your whole environment. Uh, that goes into your lifestyle and education as well. It took me a while to figure this out. My dad used to tell me all the time that the glass is half full and there's always something better that's going to happen. So it's, it's the mindset. And unfortunately, for the last three, four decades, us as a society, in America in particular, we've been trained and brainwashed to keep up with the Joneses and we've been trained to follow this lifestyle that's not natural. It's about the fancy cars you're driving, the exotic restaurants that you're going to go to, and what you're wearing. Life is much simpler than that. It's really more of a lifestyle change. And I, I believe COVID-19 is forcing us to, to make that change sooner than later. Yeah, it's certainly a moment to evaluate or reevaluate our lives. And, and I think, you know, on a hopeful note, I think this is a good moment to step back and reflect and think about what's really important to you 
what isn't, what stays, what goes. It's like a spring cleaning for your life in a sense. And so it's that opportunity to take it as such, you know, make something of this moment that maybe you wouldn't have slowed down and thought and reflected on things before because you were so caught up in that rat race. Take this moment to do the spring cleaning of your life and, and, and really decide what you want to keep and what you want to throw away. So Satya Nadell, CEO of Microsoft, made a statement earlier this year about the green initiative in Microsoft and being carbon friendly and carbon neutral on a go forward basis. COVID-19 has really accelerated that. You've got great blue skies now in San Diego. So does Phil in Brooklyn, New York. Do you think uh, we're going to follow this or once the gates open, we're going to get back to the old norm? You know, thinking about that Google search thing, uh, that searches are up for living more sustainably. Uh, there are people now that are planting victory gardens, you know, which I love. You know, they're learning to cook uh, fresh foods, which I love, which all of that plays into your mental health and your physical health. So the idea that, you know, maybe this will impact the industry. I know at Infrastructure Masons, we just uh, announced our sustainability strategy uh, and we had all the big players involved, um, everybody from the Googles, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, everyone. You know, we're all going to try to drive green uh, power, green data, and these kinds of things. And so, you know, people used to say, oh, our, our human behavior doesn't have any impact on the environment. That's just a big lie cooked up by liberals or something, they say, you know, some crazy kid in, in the Nordics, you know. But you know, the funny thing is, this is like a social experiment at scale, at global scale. You can look out, I'm in Los Angeles, and the skies have never been clearer. I've never seen them. I can see mountains with snow on them that I've never seen before. I can see all the way down south from my apartment, further than I can ever, ever seen ever. So the idea being that, you know, look at the canals of Venice running blue again. It, it, it's, a, it's almost miraculous. But I think that this is the moment that you can look around. And if you have a brain, you can see as we gear back our, you know, activities, our driving and all these things we're doing, you can see the impact with your bare eyes on the environment, on the water, on the air. So hopefully that's a big, a big wake up call for people that our actions do have an impact. We need to live more sustainably as we have growing population numbers and that this gives us a hint uh, of what mother nature has in store if we do. Yeah, the hope is that 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 point is made over and over again. I mean, there's so much you know talk now. Every you know the 24-hour news cycle and the political classes and you know when are we reopening and you know all all of the craziness that's happening, you know, in Washington and really around the world. But you do, there's not really that opportunity to see that the changes that have been imposed upon society from this really end any speculation. That you know whether whether we've been involved in in, in creating you know some of the um, you know uh, natural effects of uh, 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 or, or some of the uh, impacts to, to to global climate. I mean, you you just look out your window, like you said, and it's um, and I don't think that point is made enough. And hopefully, you know, it, it once once we get on the other side of this, whatever that looks like, uh, that's something that um, that stays with us. You know, I always operate on a first things first basis. 
you know, so first things first is, you know, how do we handle this, you know, this COVID situation? How do we stay healthy? How do we survive? You know, and, and as we look around, uh, you know, this is one of the unintended upsides of this moment. It, uh, I'm running a series of salons now with very smart and creative and fun people. We're calling it the Great Reset you know, this is the great reset moment. And, and the environmental uh, positive impact of that, like you said, just look outside. Anyone can see that now, and it's, it is undeniable. So, uh, you know, hopefully, again, we'll carry some of these positives into the future as people realize, you know, when they're breathing that fresh air, this feels pretty good. What do you wish you had known when you started your career? You've been very successful. You're really good at it. Well, I guess I wish I'd known that uh, academia does not like new ideas. In fact, uh, they're very conservative uh, and uh, they're almost, uh, my mentor calls them, you know, the root protectors, you know, protecting the old ways, the old guard. The fellow that I told you when I went to USC, who said, you know, what does computing have to do with sociology? He studied 15th century Basel missions in Switzerland. So you got to get the idea that, you know, these old studies. Now, there's been some changes in that, but I didn't realize it was going to be so hard. No one really wanted to support me. Uh, I had to ask like five people to chair my dissertation. No one would do it because they say, well, we don't know about that. Well, yeah, but you know about this. This is this in a new environment family in the new environment. No, no, I can't do that. So it really took a lot of, of, of work to get support. Um, and so now people are saying, oh, gee, you've been telling us this the whole time. You know, so being in the white space between fields is hard. And I didn't realize how hard it would be and how a lack of support I would get. But I persisted. And, and the white space, it, to me, is, is where the interesting things happen. So that's where I exist and, and do my work. One story that you started with, you know, the, the, the notion of you having those two, those two lines and then running across to the other line. I mean, there's so many different life lessons in that one moment. It's, it's, it's incredible. So I've, I've learned a lesson just from hearing, you know, that portion of your story. So the fact that, you know, you can, you can articulate it in that way and you could point to that one event, you know, I assume would resonate um, incredibly with, uh, with everyone listening. Right. Yeah. My mother used to say life turns on a dime. And that was one of those times. And, and I, I think that one of the lessons of that story is, uh, and, and related to now, you have to listen to your gut on things, your intuition. Like I knew there was something about that fellow. I knew he understood on a level way beyond, you know, what the average bear understood. And he said to me, I've been thinking about this for years and I've never met anybody that does this. So he and I teamed up, you know, we talk about the future and where things are going all the time because he has now a sounding board that understands these things. So, you know, going with your gut and your intuition, uh, even though you don't know the whole story yet, I think that's really the key. I used to be skeptical of people that said, you know, life is a confidence game because, you know, it was just an excuse for people to be obnoxious. But in reality, if you're not confident in your own thoughts and you're constantly waiting, you know, for someone else to believe in you, 
then you're never going to be able to succeed. And, and that notion that you have to believe in yourself and have the confidence to take that leap without, you know, being fearful that somebody's going to say that you're stupid or that's wrong or, or, or whatever is, is incredibly important. Yeah, you have to have a level of confidence. Um, you know where I get that? I will tell you where. And I hope after this you'll read this. There's an essay called Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I would encourage yourselves and your listeners to read that. And it gives you a lot of heart when you're doing things that are outside of the box. You know, be you're an entrepreneur, you're an artist, you're a creative, you know, any of these things. Consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, he says. So this idea that, you know, don't worry about being consistent with what everybody else is doing. And he talks about you'll only be sort of a half a version of you're trying to be somebody else. Be the full version of you. So there are many, many things he talks about a ship taking its tax seen from a distance is a straight line toward a goal. So this idea that, you know, don't worry if people don't understand you. Don't worry if you're that person out in front of everybody else or you have this idea, this new product or this, uh, you know, you've, you've come up with some completely new thing or you're an entrepreneur. So I think that reading self-reliance and rereading it and rereading it gives you courage because you have to be brave to do new things. And he is a voice resonating from the past that will tell you that if you're different, it's okay. And, and again, that's where the excitement and the new things and the creativity lie. But it's hard to be different. It's hard to be in front. And you don't always have the support until much later. Things that appear obvious to me, I've found, are not obvious to everyone else. And, and that's a very difficult thing because it just seems so clear to me, certain things. And other people, their minds just can't quite get there, i found. So reading Self-Reliance, uh, I think, will give everybody a, a real sense of, hey, if, if you don't have that support, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what the crowd is doing. Be your own unique self and do what you're doing. A part of it is that you've got to have that faith and belief in yourself. And really, who cares what people think and say or do, right? It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Everybody's got an opinion. These are some of the hard life lessons that I've learned, particularly over the last four to five years, that at the end of the day, the more important person is you. And if it was that easy, then everybody would be doing it. We all have a creative mindset. We all have a way of thinking and doing things. And I believe this is an opportunity for all of us to think differently and be more humanitarians, whereby we think about the future and the tomorrow versus what we've been doing for the last 20, 30 years in our careers. What advice would you give the younger generation or people that are in different industries to be a part of this big movement of digital transformation? Because again, digital transformation is that white space that we have talked about for the last two decades, that things are going to happen. And it's not like that we haven't talked about it. We've been talking about and preaching digital transformation and the age of the future and the age of computing. The old God hasn't bought into that story. This is a hockey stick effect that was bound to happen sooner than later. And we are there. We're at that chasm right now. Based on that, what advice would you give the younger generation, students that you're working with, and or people are in different industries? Because it's going to change the dynamic. Those people probably might not have the jobs in the same field as we move forward to in some way form or shape contribute and be a part of the technology platforms and data centers and application layer and software development? Well, I think, again, I think it's the greatest career nobody knows about. Um, and I think, you know, for, for young people, many of them are seeking, from what I see, uh, they've been trained up in school to look for rubrics, to look for certainty, 
to look for a clear step-by-step path, and you don't always get that. So the idea of being able to take a risk is okay. Surround yourself with people like I have a mentor, you know, surround yourself with people uh, that can support you in what you're trying to do. So, and the idea that you can take what you do, like, for example, as you saw, I have training around human behavior. I have over 6,000 hours of experience sitting in rooms with people, counseling them from from university settings to private practice to even a mental hospital. I've seen how behavior works on the ground. But I can now apply these lessons to a community level, to a societal level, to think about behavioral change. So in other words, don't be afraid to branch out and connect the dots between things that you're doing that you're interested in and other fields and and working with others because that way you're going to really find unique solutions, unique, innovative solutions around engineering, around design, around computer programming, all these things by collaborating across fields with people that think and have different experiences and different expertise than you do. So I think, I I guess that's it. Just don't be afraid to act out of the box a little bit. Absolutely. So one of the points that you make about certainty, right? I mean, there's nothing certain ever in your life. I'm a perfect example of it. I grew up with more Excel spreadsheets and mapping out my entire career and my retirement at the age of 20. Nothing worked out the way I had planned. And here we are. Uh, and, and I guess that's the other thing is, is don't break when the winds blow. You know, flex and be flexible and be willing to change what you thought you were going to do be willing to change those plans. Don't be so wedded to one single thing because life throws challenges at you. And, you know, you may have a, a future that's 28,000 times better than the one that you were even picturing. I mean, imagine me writing this book. I've been able to go literally around the world, have amazing conversations with amazing people. I mean, it's it's the most incredible thing you could ever think of. But, you know, maybe I didn't imagine that. A guy that I saw... When I was a kid on a stage, Thomas Dolby, the musician who did Blinded Me with Science and things like that, I saw him when I was a kid. He was one inch tall on a stage, and there were 65,000 other people there, and I thought he was the coolest guy in the whole world. Well, Thomas Dolby just wrote the foreword to my book. This guy that had you told me as a kid, see that guy on the stage that's one inch high, and you're way up there with bad seas because you don't have any money because you're a kid? That guy's going to write the foreword to your next book. Shut up. I would have slapped you in the face. You know, never was going to happen. So you can't always envision what your future is going to be or the amazing things that are going to happen. So you have to let uh, the universe, if you will, or chance or fate or all these things, however you want to describe it, you know, lead the path. I can't plan that I'm going to meet the CTO of Chevron and write a $121 million grant. That wasn't in my plan, but that's what happened, you see because I was open to shifting around and changing as opportunities showed up. So that's the thing. Be flexible in life. Julie, it was great having you. Enjoyed the conversation. Some great stuff. And thank you very much for taking the time and being a part of the Nomad Futures podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was wonderful to talk to you today. Absolutely. I could have done this. I could have, I could have done this all day. <laughs> this has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. 
I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.